When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Today on the New Books Network, we welcome Dr. Nadine Weidman, who is a historian of science with a research emphasis on the history of instinct and emotion, or human nature. She also teaches the history of psychology and neuroscience, and her book for this episode is titled Killer Instinct, The Popular Science of Human Nature in 20th Century America. It looks at topics from fruit to sociobiology to ask us this question. Are human beings innately violent? Nadine, would you please introduce yourself to the NBN audience? Sure. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak today. Um, I'm a historian of science. Um, I'm interested in the history of the sciences of human nature that is, histories of psychology, of anthropology, and of those aspects of biology that have to do with defining what it means to be human. And I'm interested in how scientists in these fields make their knowledge, how they create knowledge claims, and how they make those knowledge claims convincing when they tell us that human beings are this way, um, should we believe them? That's part of what I'm interested in knowing. And um, should we believe them? And how do they convince us that what they know is true? And I'm especially interested in how they make these knowledge claims for popular audiences. And when did you start writing this book? Uh, well, I, I would say I started in earnest about five years before it was published. It took me about five years to write it, but I was researching it and thinking about it for about 15 years, actually, before that. And um, I wrote it, I didn't write it in order. I wrote it, I wrote different parts um, at different times. So I actually started out in the middle and then I worked my way toward the end and then I sort of came back to the beginning. So it definitely was not a linear process. 
Can you explain to the listeners of the NBN audience what the genre of human nature is for researchers and also explain how it's developed since the 1970s? Yeah. Well, I think for us today, when we think about the science of human nature, we think about a a, a, a genre such as evolutionary psychology, and perhaps it's one of its most famous popular practitioners, Steven Pinker. Um, Before there was such a thing as evolutionary psychology, it was called sociobiology. That's kind of what it was known as um, in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, Today, I think evolutionary psychology is often supplemented by neuroscience. Um, And I think we also see um, sort of manifestations of it in popular works of popular primatology. So people who study primates, Franz de Waal and Richard Wrangham. Um, So, I mean, the genre is really about trying to excavate our inner biologically based evolutionary sh- evolutionarily shaped um, set of behaviors that mark us as human. It's in a sense as kind of, I think of it as trying to excavate our common inner human nature, our inner human essence. And the researchers in this area definitely think of it as biologically based, as ultimately as genetically based, and as shaped by our evolutionary history. So I think it's changed to some extent since the 1970s. It's changed in name since the 1970s. Um, But this conception that we're looking for some inner set of um, biologically based behaviors that are common to the whole human species is certainly an idea that's remained constant, I think. You write about popular science and popular ethology, but where did that come from and why is it why is there an emphasis on the popular of popular writing? Right. Well, um, before there was sociobiology, there were also scientists who are interested in excavating that inner human nature, that inner beast within us. And um, they called themselves ethologists, scientists who studied animal behavior in the wild. Um, And they sought to make, uh, so not only study animal behavior in the wild, but also um, draw conclusions from that about human behavior and about human nature. And these works of ethology were aimed at popular audiences. Um, So I'm talking about um, the writings, for example, of Conrad Lorenz, who was uh, one of the co-founders of the science of ethology and really a, a pioneer in making that science accessible and available to the public. And he wrote popular books in the 1950s that were 
widely read and really beloved. I mean, King Solomon's Ring is one of them. Man Meets Dog um, is another. And he was followed by um, the Broadway playwright and Hollywood scriptwriter Robert Ardrey, who also was interested in bringing the sciences of ethology and of paleoanthropology, that is the science of um, human behavior in, in its ancient forms um, to the public. And his books also became widely popular. So I see it as a kind of popular phenomenon that exploded into um, the public realm in the 1950s and especially in the 1960s. And I'm very interested in the ways that these authors made their works accessible and interesting and exciting for the public. I don't think it was a natural, automatic, or inevitable development that these works became popular. I think they, their authors deliberately strategized in certain ways to make to bring these works to a popular audience. What then is your book arguing about the nature of human aggression and how is it different from what other historians have written? Yeah. Well, I'm interested in I'm writing about the history of ideas about history of claims about behavior having a biological basis and being shaped by our evolutionary, by human evolutionary ancestry. And I find that this is an idea that, um, as I think, kind of exploded into the popular realm in the post-World War II period through such vehicles as the writings of Conrad Lorenz and Robert Ardrey and then others also. Um, and I think a very common way of understanding this, this historical development is uh, that these, these writings, these books, these popular books, these scientists kind of entered a field that was dominated by the idea that human nature was simply a blank slate, that human infants are born into the world with no tendencies, no innate behaviors, no uh, sort of, you know, instinctual or biological, biologically based urges of any kind. They're just sort of blank slates waiting to be written on by environment and by culture and by upbringing. And so then the claim is that these biologically based theories, the theories of the ethologists, the popular ethologists, and later the sociobiologists, came in and sort of, you know, uprooted these blank slate theories that were dominating the social sciences. And I think that's simply not true. Um, I think there were some people who argued that human nature was a blank slate, but they were not um, the most uh, visible ones at the time that these ethology 
popular ethology theories came to um, came to prominence, and they were not the ones who opposed the popular ethology theories. So I think this is this is kind of a um, uh, a mistaken un- understanding of the historical playing field at the time and gives way, way too much prominence to the idea that the social sciences were dominated by the conception of the blank slate. How have women been depicted in this history? Well, they've... In the in the pop ethology theory, popular ethology theories, they always play a very secondary role to males, according to the pop ethologists, and I'm meaning here Conrad Lorenz, Robert Ardrey, um, Anthony Storr, Desmond Morris, um, the sort of core group of pop ethologists who made these theories well known in the 1960s. Women's nature is not at all well suited to the kind of aggression instinct that they thought was natural and necessary in human nature. Um, the popethologists argued that aggression was an inborn, instinctual, um, biologically based drive in human nature that it had to find expression. It could, it could not be um, ever eradicated or expunged. Um, and it had to be uh, sort of productively channeled, at least safely channeled and hopefully productively channeled so as to actually help to create social bonds among people. So they thought that this kind of aggression instinct and its ability to be productively channeled and sort of changed in a way into a social bonding mechanism was really exclusively a male phenomenon. Um, Lorenz admitted that women could be aggressive, but he thought only if they were mothers defending their young. And he didn't see that as the, as the same kind of aggression as this male type, which is what I think he was really interested in. So, so to answer your question, um, gen- this, these claims were definitely gendered, and women critics, women biologists who are critics of the ethologists and also of the sociobiologists, certainly um, picked up on them and 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 criticized them for that reason, for their sexism. You talked about the core popular ethologists. Can you go into greater depth of maybe each of their um, histories or how they, you know, were conceptualizing the idea of ethology and also how are your, how is your research process maybe different from theirs? Yes. Well, I think of this core group as comprised of Conrad Lorenz, who was an ornithologist. He was a zoologist and comparative psychologist by training, focused especially on birds and bird behavior. Um, He's well known for um, his explication of the uh, theory of imprinting, in which a young baby bird will 
follow the first mother figure that it sees during a certain critical period after its birth, even if that mother figure is not its actual mother. So Lorenz was famous for getting um, ducks and geese to imprint on him, and there are many iconic pictures of him sort of strolling through the uh, the uh, you know woods and fields of his home in around near Vienna, followed by these trains of imprinted ducklings. So sort of very charming images that I think came out into were made public in the 1950s, and that in a sense I think audiences kind of fell in love with those with that image of him. He was awarded the 1973 Nobel Prize, um, which he shared with his collaborator, the Dutch ethologist and co-founder of the science of ethology, Nico Tinbergen. Um, there's also in this core group, Robert Ardry, who I mentioned was actually a Broadway playwright and a Hollywood scriptwriter. He was not a scientist by training, but he was a very exciting kind of writer. He knew how to make a story interesting. Um, in a mid-change uh, career, sort of career change in midlife, he gave up his um, script writing and went to South Africa to um, learn about the recent discoveries of the paleoanatomist Raymond Dart near Johannesburg in South Africa. Dart was arguing that our ancient human ancestors were actually bloodthirsty killers. And Ardry uh, was fascinated by that idea, picked up on it, and then wrote these popular books that sort of combined Dart's findings about paleoanatomy, paleoanthropology, with um, Lorenz's findings about or, or claims about ethology. There was also, as part of this core group, um, Anthony Storr, who was a British psychiatrist and a follower of Lorenz and uh, really brought Lorenz's ideas about aggression into the realm of mental health. So they were kind of a diverse, there were some others too, but they were really a diverse group. They covered you know, many different fields, and they perfected a, a kind of writing style and a way of drawing in audiences, putting themselves as characters in their own books that really, um, I think, serve to draw audiences in. I think those are really some of the strategies that they use to draw audiences in. So the way my own approach differs is that I'm a historian, and I'm interested in how these people made their claims, how their claims were accepted or rejected or received or appropriated by various audiences, and how their claims sort of circulated and traveled. And ultimately, what I'd like to do is try to explain why they became seemingly credible and convincing when they did. Um, why is it that people thought they were believable, that people thought they were credible? That's really what I'm, I'm seeking to explain. I myself don't actually, I don't think, believe any of these various theories, but I'm seeking to explain why other people at the time did. 
of all the animals, which ones were referenced most in studies or experiments about um, living creatures' behavior, biological organism? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think mostly today when we think about the science of human nature and biological basis of human nature and arguments for it, we think about um, primatology. I think we think about, you know, perhaps uh, work that focuses on chimpanzees or bonobos. Um, But for the ethologists, those were not the animals principally of interest. For Lorenz, his favorite experimental animal was actually the greylag goose. And he also did experiments with um, sort of ethological experiments and observational behavioral experiments on um, ducks of various different species, on corvids, um, jackdaws, that is a kind of... uh, European crow, and he also made observations and did experiments on fish. So I think that's that might be surprising for us that ducks, geese, and fish were the favored animals here. And I mean, it makes the question, I think, all the more interesting. Why is it that audiences reading these books could see similarities between themselves and gray lag geese. You know, what was it that that um, Lorenz did to make the behavior of a gray lag goose with, um, you know, sort of comparable to human behavior? And Lorenz's way of uh, working with these animals was that he sort of gave them the free run of his house. He lived with them day by day in his house. So, you know, gray lag geese were walking in and out of the house and, um, you know, there were ducks in his ponds and he lived on a nice estate outside of Vienna. So he had plenty of room, both outdoors and indoors to keep these animals. He had, you know, jackdaws nesting in his attic and so on. And what about Montague? Yeah, Montague. Well, Ashley Montague was the main public opponent of the Pompeithologists. When he read their books claiming that human beings have an aggression instinct, he was horrified. And he did his best to try to rebut their claims in public. Montague was an anthropologist by training, both a physical and a cultural anthropologist. He became quite well known um, in the 1940s and early 50s for being a very outspoken opponent of scientific racism. He was um, very much against the idea that there could be any such claim that the races were biologically different Um, in any way. So he argued for human equality. And when the ethologists started coming out with their claims about human nature and its tendency, its urge for aggression, 
um, Montague really opposed them. He believed that human beings were not aggressive by nature, but that they were cooperative by nature. They were altruistic and loving by nature. And he got together all kinds of um, evidence, some of it from primatology, some of it from anthropology, um, some of it from ethologists who were not in Lorenz's camp to make the argument that, uh, that Lorenz and Argy were simply wrong and that human, human behavior had a totally different basis. Um, interestingly, he was also convinced of the biological basis. Uh, Montague was also convinced of the biological basis for behavior. He thought the tendencies toward altruism and cooperation in human nature actually had a biological basis. So he was certainly not a blank slater in the ways that um, I think he's been later portrayed and certainly in the ways that uh, Lorenz and Ardry tried to por- por- portray him. They, they argued that he was that he believed in no biological basis for behavior at all. But in fact, he did. He just thought that the biological tendencies in human nature were different from the ones that Lorenz and Ardry thought. He, he was a cooperationist and not a, an aggressionist. Yeah, what about that cooperation versus aggression debate? Was that a bigger issue than we might think it was? It was a huge issue, I think, in the 1960s. I think this was how the debate over Lorenz's and Ardry's claims, which were hugely popular. I mean, their books were bestsellers. And it's interesting that even when I give talks on this topic today, usually, I mean, someone will always come up from the audience and say, you know, I remember reading Robert Ardry back in the day. I remember Territorial Imperative, which was one of Ardry's books from 1966. I mean, these things made a huge splash. And as far as I can tell from the, um, especially the, the reception in the popular press, the, the reviews of them were rapturous. And there were you know, politicians and uh, statesmen arguing that, you know, we need to understand these views about aggression because they explain why human beings act the way they do and, you know, why the Vietnam War is going the way it is. So I think they made a really huge impression at the time. And Montague, as their opponent, I think really had his work cut out for him. He really had to he really had to fight to try to get his own view of human nature across. Um, and I think in some ways he was kind of less successful than he might have hoped because the aggressionists, that is the popethologists, Lorenz and Ardry and their followers were very consistent in portraying him as a blank slater, which was really not true to his to his actual beliefs, but that didn't really matter to them. They portrayed him in this as an extremist, 
as someone who believed that behavior had no biological basis at all and that it was only a product of culture. And he made they made his belief seem really incredible, really unbelievable. And I think that kind of backed him into a corner. And um, he actually ended up sometimes sounding like an extreme environmentalist, sometimes sounding like an actual blank slater, which of course didn't help his cause. So I think as this debate between these two sides, between the aggression the aggressionists on the one side and Montague and his cooperationist um, allies on the other side, as this debate proceeded, um, there was kind of a shift over time where they started out both arguing, although in different ways, for a biologically based human nature. By the time the debate kind of, you know, was reaching its end by the mid-1970s, Montague had been backed into this environmentalist blank slate kind of view, which I think is too bad. And part of what my book tries to do is to show how that happened over the course of the debate and to try to recover some of the... um, some of the sort of recover, reanimate some of the alternatives about human nature that actually existed at the time. So try to get away from this idea that this was a nature versus nurture debate, that it was was a debate between, you know, the advocates of a biological basis for behavior and people like Montague or these blank slate types. Try to get beyond that that kind of stark dichotomy, which is the way I think the debate kind of ended up, and to get back to try to understand what the actual alternatives were at the time, because I think it was much richer than this nature versus nurture dichotomy um, leads us to believe. And there are books for example, African Genesis, and then the Territorial Imperative, which you mentioned, were yeah. some of these in conversation with each other? Yeah. Well, those were bo- both books by Robert Ardrey, African Genesis and Territorial Imperative. Um, and, uh, I mean, as I say, I think they were widely read. I think they were enormously influential. I don't think everybody who read them agreed with them, but I think... Even when they were criticized, they were they were they were being read and they were being applied in um, sort of the the sort of the context in which they were taken up. So, I mean, people would read territorial imperative and apply it to the political situations of the day to try to explain why they were happening the way they were. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think they used, I think Audrey in those books used certain strategies of argument, certain techniques of narrative. I think the way he made his own author's persona very evident in those books and, uh, very, I think, um, 
accessible to his readers, really helped readers to pick up on them and gave those books an added impact. So I think it's, I, I'm trying to kind of place some emphasis on the kinds of strategies that Audrey and also Lorenz used as authors that helped their books to achieve popular status. I don't think that, you know, sort of the way that they um, became popular was just natural or automatic or, you know, of course people would want to read these books because they were so, you know, stirring, but rather that the authors deliberately pitched their works to draw in popular audiences and that in turn the audiences picked up on the messages that were given out in these books and applied them to pressing political situations of the day, made them seem perhaps even more relevant than their authors had even intended. So the readers kind of picked up on the messages and helped the authors do their work for them. So I think it's this kind of... um, not only the strategies of the authors, but the ways that they were read can help us explain why these books achieved popularity when they did. Would you agree or disagree that maybe some of these researchers were, not imitating, but emulating Charles Darwin and his research theories? Well, I think they would have liked to see see themselves as doing that. They definitely thought of themselves as Darwinians. And I think Lorenz certainly saw himself as picking up on Darwin's legacy. Um, I think there are some ways in which they are were a bit different from Darwin. Um, first, it, I think Lorenz was... Um, sort of gave less credence to um, variability within species than Darwin did. Um, He tended to see certain species, whether it was a duck species or a goose species or even the human species, as um, more sort of conforming to type so that there was like this kind of shared repertoire of behaviors that this species would engage in. And he, I don't think he placed that much emphasis on variation or variability within the species. Whereas for Darwin, behavior was all about variability. So I think that's one difference between them. Um, and another is when it came to human evolution, I think Darwin certainly believed that human behavior, the human mind, um, human sort of mental capabilities arose from lower forms, as he put it, lower forms. He was certainly interested in connections between animal evolution and human in, in terms of mental and moral capabilities. But I think at the same time, he also emphasized the difference, uh, the distance rather, between 
animal and human. He thought that social and moral evolution, human social and moral evolution, had moved humans beyond the animal realm. I think Lorenz was much more interested in seeing continuities and really believed that there was a kind of beast still within us that had these potentially dangerous, aggressive tendencies and that we had to, you know, understand and deal with um, in some way. So I think there's just a closer connection between animals and humans for Lorenz than there was for Darwin. Um, Lorenz used to say that animals are simply emotional people of very little intelligence. And he spoke consistently about humans in animal terms. So I think he was, he was making a closer connection between animal behavior and human behavior, especially mental, moral, social behavior, than Darwin was. When did researchers really focus on the animal-human binary, or boundary, sorry? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, this idea of the animal-human boundary and how that might be crossed, I mean, certainly it goes back to Darwin, and Darwin may have been among the first to try to cross that boundary, to explain um, human behavior in terms of its animal forebears and its animal relations. Um, I think um, how they crossed the animal-human boundary is also an important question. I was just mentioning the way I think that um, Darwin emphasized the distance between animal and human in some respects. I think for, I think for Lorenz, it, there was a closer relationship. For Lorenz, there's still an animal within us, and we haven't really evolved beyond that. And I think he believed that we had to understand the tendencies of this animal within us, especially, you know, its aggressive urges, and we had to acknowledge them, and we had to deal with them. We had to try to channel them in these productive ways, because if we didn't, disaster would result. I mean, he said, we have, you know, imagine we have human beings before us, the tendencies of an aggressive ape in their heart and their hand on an atomic weapon. You know, what could be a scarier image than this? We have to somehow deal with these aggressive tendencies and at least divert them or even better, productively channel them. What is the amity equals enmity plus hazard equation? Oh, yes. Well, this was something that uh, Robert Ardry dreamed up in the territorial imperative. Um, Basically, amity equals enmity plus hazard. So the equation means that amity, that is um, relations within the in-group, so the ways that 
people feel connected to each other within their group, within their in-group, is directly correlated with the amount of enmity that they feel toward an out-group. So his claim here is that aggression directed outward helps to hold the in-group together. And the point about hazard is just hazard means like other sorts of outside dangers like the weather, for example. So if you're faced with an outside disaster, that also will help the in-group to cohere and to stay together. But his real emphasis was that there needs to be sort of an en- an enemy out there. There needs to be an out-group out there that one can direct one's aggression against. And that will help the in-group to stay together. I mean, I think this is an idea that we still see today in claims that xenophobia is somehow a natural kind of tendency in human behavior, that we you know, have a, a, a kind of natural tendency to form in-groups and to fear and to hate out-groups. I think it's a very, very problematic claim, but I think it's a claim of very long-standing, and I certainly see, see it coming out in Audrey's work. How have you used some of your ancient Greek literature and language training in your research? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I, I majored in ancient Greek language and literature as an undergraduate. Um, and I think what it did for me is really give me a, a love for and a, 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 a need to pay attention to language and to sentence structure and to word choice. And I really got that from doing translations from ancient Greek plays and epic poetry. Um, It really helped me to pay attention to the craft of writing and to really develop a love for words and putting them together in the best and clearest way possible. I'm sometimes thinking when I'm writing, how would I translate this? Could I, is, is, is this clear enough that I could translate it? How can I make this this sentence clearer and more accurate? And thinking about translation and doing translation has helped me to do that, thinking about idioms and metaphors and how one might translate those. Um, and I think, you know, the ancient Greek literature that I read was full of stories and full of characters and gave me a a, a real interest in trying to make the characters in my own writing come alive and make the storylines as compelling. Why altruism and what role did it play in studying human nature? Well, um, altruism was a, a conception of human nature that I think... I associate with Montague and with some of his allies in this debate with the poppythologists, such as the Russian-born American uh, sociologist Peter M. Sorokin. 
Um, they were convinced that altruism was a deep tendency in human nature, that human beings had a need for love that had to be fulfilled or people would sort of, you know, go bad, uh, become ill. And um, this was a powerful belief uh, for them. I think they, they didn't try to... Um, well, I, I mean, I think they thought that altruism was this kind of biological need and that it was related to the need for cooperation, for uh, mutual aid, um, and for love. And I see this argument being made by social scientists, Montague and Sorokin among them, in the 20th century. I think um, Montague ultimately uh, traced the idea back to uh, Peter Kropotkin, who was a geographer and evolutionist around the uh, late 19th century, turn of the 20th century, who argued that it was not competition that marked animal behavior in the wild, but cooperation. And he tried to revise Darwin's emphasis on, co on competition to argue that actually what he saw in the wild was animals cooperating with each other and offering mutual aid to each other to uh, help each other survive rather than a competition for a competition to the death for survival. And I see Montague as really picking up on that idea of mutual aid and um, sort of exploring it and develop, developing it into this notion that cooperation love and altruism are natural tendencies for human beings. Do you think um, communism had a place in this discussion for um, human nature and biology? Well, um, I think communism was a kind of uh, threat to both sides in this argument about human nature. Um, Lorenz, Ardry, as well as Montague, um, kind of identified communism as uh, a, a way of trying to re-engineer human bonds, a kind of behavioral, attempted behavioral engineering. The communists were trying to inculcate in people loyalty, not to their family, but to the state and to kind of re-engineer bonds that, you know, Lorenz and Ardry and Montague thought were natural, um, re-engineer them to try to um, make people more loyal to the state than to their own family. So I think they thought of communism as um, thinking of human beings as kind of endlessly manipulable, this is the ultimate blank slate view. Um, and Ardry and the others, I mean, objected to this notion. They thought that human beings were actually a bundle of ancient, powerful instincts, you know, aggression among them, and that 
this communist desire to uh, remake a new man was doomed to fail because of those instincts. You already went over some of the ways women were you know, part of the social strata. But do you want to talk about how anthropologists gendered aggression, if it's different? Yeah, well, as I mentioned, um, aggression for the ethologists really, especially this, this productive kind of aggression that they thought could be channeled and serve to um, strengthen social bonds in the in-group, this kind of aggression they they gendered as male. And there were many women critics of this idea. Um, the ethologists had um, had um, female critics who were biologists. For example, uh, Rita Arditi was a very outspoken um, public critic of the aggressionists. Um, a little bit later on, after sociobiology enters the picture with E.O. Wilson, um, a bunch of women biologists and psychologists got together to form a group that they called the Genes and Gender Collective. And um, biologists like uh, Ruth Hubbard and comparative psychologist Ethel Toback were uh, sort of prominent members of this group. And they brought a series of very, very important and um, I think very significant criticisms against both the ethologists and the sociobiologists, focused on the sexism of on the gendering and on the sexism of their claims. If you had to pick a field, not history or history of science and psychology, then what field would you be working in? Well, that's a good question. I thought about that. I, th I think I might actually be a novelist. Um, I'm interested in characters and I'm interested in telling a story. And of course, as a historian, I'm, true to my sources. Um, and I, you know, I, I have to tell the story of what's going on in them, in, in the sources, in the primary sources. But there's still a way in which the story has to be shaped and in which I wanted to make these characters sort of come alive and, you know, sort of come off the page as real, complicated, three-dimensional human beings. So I think if I wasn't writing history, I, I might actually be writing fiction. You write about the Man and the Beast Symposium and E.O. Wilson. Um, can you speak to him and the symposium and also about other ways that the field was being promoted? Yeah. Well, what I, um, what I think is that as this aggression debate was going on, so we have um, Lorenz and Ardry and their followers and Montague and his allies kind of battling it out over what human nature really is and what these biological tendencies and urges in human beings really are and this tremendously 
public and very vituperative and very long-standing debate going on starting, I would say, in the mid-1960s when the popular ethology books really hit the stands and extending through, I would say, just about the mid-1970s. So it was like a 10-year debate, very long, very drawn out, very vituperative, very public, and quite unresolved because at the end of it, there's really no winner. Neither of these sides has really, I think, you know, managed to totally vanquish the other. Um, I think there was this change, there was this shift over time toward um, each side portraying each other in these, as extremists, especially Lorenz and Ardry portraying Montague as an extreme blank Slater, which he wasn't. Um, but there's no, there's no real conclusion to the debate. The thing that I think happened in the mid-1970s was that E.O. Wilson entered the picture with sociobiology. So this was an attempt to understand the genetic, the biological basis of social behavior in the entire animal kingdom, from ants to primates. And in his last chapter, he extended that, what he called that synthesis, to human beings. So he's really examining, so not just gray lag geese and fish now, but the entire animal kingdom and trying to understand what the sort of basic um, patterns of behavior are, biologically based, evolutionarily shaped patterns of social behavior across um, species like this. Um, and he first sort of set out this grand scheme at the symposium that took place in 1969 in Washington, D.C., sponsor sponsored by the Smithsonian Institution, called Man and Beast. And it's here that Wilson, I think, made a kind of direct intervention into the aggression debate. He tried to uh, revise what um, Lorenz was saying about aggression as an instinct. He thought the idea of instinct was, uh, Wilson thought the idea of instinct was too simplistic, tried to put the whole notion of behavior on a more, as he saw it, more sophisticated um, biological footing, um, bringing in concepts of genetics that Lorenz really hadn't uh, dealt with, um, but still arguing that there's a core essence, you know, essential core biological behaviors that we can identify as sort of essentially human. So sharing, I think, Lorenz's um, basic assumption, but uh, making some changes to the kind of science that's supposed to excavate that inner human nature. Um, so I see socio Wilson's sociobiology is really growing directly out of and in, in response to this aggression debate. Can you tell us more about the human biogram? 
Yeah, well, that's what Wilson called this species-typical, genetically-based suite of behaviors that he thought all humans shared in common. And it included such things as warfare and aggression and um, parenting and altruism, care for young, and um, ultimately he thought it also included religion. He thought religious belief, religious worship was a common universal human trait. So the human biogram is this way of, this sort of idea that there's this universal set of behaviors that all humans all the world over since time immemorial, no matter what their culture, engage in. And the biogram is the attempt to define that set of behaviors and ultimately to explain how and why they evolved, what, you know, sort of what adaptive purpose they might have served in the environment, the ancient environment in which they evolved. And that I see as um, Wilson's project in his sociobiological works. Also, why were sociobiology and Wilson's publications blasted in the media? Can you tell us some of those news outlets? And also, Wilson was dealing with accusations of sexism, too? He certainly was. He dealt with accusations of sexism from the Genes and Gender Collective, from Ethel Toback and from Ruth Hubbard, especially, among others. Um, There are these women scientists who were total critics of sociobiology and of Wilson. And I think, uh, I mean, there was an enormous debate about Wilson's work. Um, But I think that the women critics were not always given the central place in that debate that they should have been that the male critics of sociobiology, and here I'm thinking mainly of Richard C. Lewinton and Stephen Jay Gould um, and their colleagues in the sociobiology study group, which was kind of the um, a major group of left-wing critics of sociobiology that that group of critics tended to marginalize the women critics. So people like Hubbard and Toback didn't get to play as major a role in the sociobiology study group, in the group of um, mainly male critics that I think they would have liked to, or even that they should have. So when it comes to criticisms of sociobiology, the critics of sociobiology, there's kind of this, um, I would say, kind of a split between the sociobiology study group that I think saw itself as the main set of critics and then these 
women biologists and women scientists who were more focused on what they saw as the sexism of sociobiology. Um, in terms of the news outlets where this debate, this sociobiology debate was um, sort of also made public, um, in such outlets as uh, the New York Review of Books and in Science for the People magazine, which was the magazine for that the sociobiology study group um, printed many of its um, many of its um, criticisms. So yes, sociobiology and Wilson were blasted in the public media, and an enormous public debate arose around them, much in the same way as a public debate arose around the popular ethologists uh, about 10 years earlier. And as a historian, what are you doing to preserve the legacy of human nature to make it more accepting, you know, for everyone? And also, where's the field going from here? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's important to bring out these critiques the criticisms of the genes and genes and gender collective that they made of sociobiology and ethology. I mean, I think they make some really powerful critiques and I think it's important for us not to marginalize those critiques and to remember what they were and to give them a more central place. So um, in part, what I'm trying to do is to remember um things that we may have forgotten, things that may have gotten um, marginalized, things that may have been lost during the sort of the, um, you know, during the fray of these debates. They were so, they were so um, vituperative that I think some of the nuances and some of the criticisms have been forgotten and have dropped out. And so I'm trying to kind of bring those back trying to remember what those were. And, I mean, as I mentioned before, I think that these debates over human nature are are so polarizing that it is really hard to remember that there was once a much more rich ecosystem of ideas about human nature that once existed. Um that these debates have sort of managed to, you know, kind of blast away in this sort of very polarizing way that they do. So I think kind of, I see my, my aim as trying to reanimate alternatives that once existed to kind of get back to the late 1950s and the early 1960s and to see what kinds of discourse there was about human nature that isn't well represented by this sort of very polarizing nature versus nurture dichotomy that ultimately came to prevail, to kind of reanimate that rich ecosystem, um, including these ideas about natural cooperation and altruism, including the feminist alternatives, the critiques that the women 
scientists came up with and to really see this very complicated kind of um, landscape um, that I think has been forgotten or has mainly been deliberately suppressed and that we need to remember was once there, was once once existed. And, and to maybe, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a, a, actually an advocate of any one of these positions, but to remember that there were alternatives there and that maybe some of them might be, you know, might be useful to us or might be productive or might be worth thinking about. Uh, just in terms of where the field is going for, from here, I think actually that today in discussions about human nature, there is more emphasis on altruism than there used to be, and there is more emphasis on cooperation. I don't think that advocates of those positions ever really trace them back to Montague, but I think they could, because I think that those beliefs existed back then, too, and... Um, you know, we need to remember that. Any final thoughts for the New Books Network audience? Also, if anyone wanted to message you or meet you in person or read more of your writing, what should they do? Well, I would say just drop me an email. Um, and I'd be happy to talk more about my work and you know, hear feedback from, from readers about it. I, I'd be really interested in that. Um, final thoughts for the audience. Well, I would say watch out for what scientists say when they talk about human nature. I think we kind of hear this a lot, especially in popular science writings. Scientists and popular science authors making claims about why humans are the way they are. And I would say, don't believe everything you read. Um, When these scientists make these claims, they're always, by definition, going beyond their, their evidence because they're making claims about all of humanity. So I would say, be skeptical of those and think about the fact that um, when they're making claims about human nature, they're not only talking about how we do behave, but often also about how we should behave, kind of passing over this line from talking about facts to talking about values. And when scientists do that, I think we have to beware. We have to be skeptical. So that would be my message. This has been a podcast episode of the New Books Network with host Nathan Moore. Today's interview was with Nadine Weidman on her book, Killer Instinct, The Popular Science of Human Nature in 20th Century America. For more books on the history of science and and topics uh, and podcast, stay tuned to NBN to find new episodes uploaded uploaded on the website.